Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of June 10th, Reactions to the Fed. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss our takeaways from the June FOMC meeting and why spread market investors might want to consider taking profit ahead of July, which could turn out to be a turning point for markets. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creeter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Okay, Dan, coming off of the FOMC announcement, as well as a longer than normal press conference of more than an hour, I've written down that like the three most important things coming from the Fed's meeting today were, one, rates aren't going higher anytime soon, two, rates aren't going negative, and three, that there's now a floor on QE purchases. Yeah, I think we had a good idea of the first two. They did enact some forward guidance, but like we've talked about in the past, it's not like the market really expected the Fed to be raising rates in the foreseeable future. Also, the Fed has been pretty adamantly opposed to going negative. I think most FOMC members have been vocally opposed. Those most in favor of negative rates have said something only to the effect of, well, never say never, but it's not an appropriate policy right now. And yeah, I think the commitment to putting a floor on treasury QE purchases is significant for spread markets. They've been lowering the pace of purchases pretty consistently since the end of March. I think putting this floor on purchases should help to keep liquidity ample in the system, even if it's not terribly surprising. Yeah, from a high level, I agree with you. I think that's what market participants are reading into when we saw risk assets perform higher immediately following the Fed's announcement. We saw stocks briefly trade green before going back lower again, I think upon the realization that, all right, well, this is good news. It's really not much of a surprise. I think we're all expecting Kiwi to be around in relatively big size for the foreseeable future. And now to go backwards to another point you made about negative rates. I agree that was something that we were generally expecting, that rates wouldn't go negative. But getting that confirmation at this FOMC meeting is worth something. And it also highlights something else that Chairman Powell said during his presser, which was, that they were using all of their tools. The implication was using all of their tools to a large extent. So the Fed has really, even by its own admission at this point, kind of put all their chips into the middle of the table going all in to fight the COVID virus. There's really not much left they can do at this point outside yield curve control, which seems to be something that the FOMC is saving for potentially a rainy day. Yeah, there was more talk about yield curve control, and it does seem like that's become more a matter of when, not if. And I think with respect to yield curve control as it relates to spread markets, what we're really looking at is the parameters around yield curve control. For example, if they were to target, say, five-year rates, are they going to put a cap at 25 basis points or 50 basis points? Because that has pretty significant implications for the amount of QE that they're going to be doing as a byproduct of that policy. Yeah, I agree with you. The mechanics of yield curve control are going to be vital if and when it becomes an official policy by the Fed. But I don't think that's going to happen in the near term. I think we're going to be waiting for another period of volatility because it really does represent, at least to me, the last meaningful tool at the Fed's disposal to fight deflation or try to spark economic growth. And I think that 
kind of sums up the key points of the FOMC statement, which I would say fell in line with expectations. At this point, I just want to focus a bit on some of your general takeaways from what Chairman Powell had to say at the press conference. And I'll say that one of the things that stood out to me most was he didn't seem overly optimistic, did he? No, he definitely struck more of a pessimistic tone, emphasizing that millions of Americans would be without jobs for a significant period of time and that a lot of these jobs would not come back. And I think it's somewhat surprising in that you don't see very often central bankers take an overly pessimistic tone. Like you said, there was emphasis that the Fed has used most of their tools. And there's also discussion that policymakers in Washington had done a great job with respect to the the stimulus that they got. But there was an emphasis that this shock that the economy is facing is very unprecedented and that the labor market has been derailed in a way that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. Yeah, you definitely don't hear central bankers often talk about the unprecedented size and speed with which fiscal stimulus is delivered. It always feels like they're begging for more fiscal stimulus, not the case today. So it felt like Chairman Powell a couple times talked about how great the Fed's response has been to the pandemic, as well as how great the Trump administration's response has been. And yet here we are using words like, let's hope it keeps working. Let's hope that this May payrolls number turns out to be a market bottom. And I actually was surprised just to focus on one thing. I was surprised by how often he referenced that May number. It seemed to me he referenced it at least five or six times. And that just stood out to me as potentially, okay, we're maybe putting a little too much stock into one data point here. And that's one of the things I've been struggling with in the days since the May payrolls number came out. Obviously, we've all seen the issues surrounding reliable collection of data given the pandemic and how certain workers in certain situations should be marked or mismarked and the breakdown of sectors where jobs are coming back. It just concerns me that potentially the May payrolls number ends up being a confirmation that the economy reopened to some extent, which we already knew, like restaurants that weren't open at all and no workers were at. Some workers came back during the month of May. What I'm concerned about is it does appear like economist models at this point are essentially broken. Models aren't designed to deal with the impact that things like the pandemic have had on the employment situation. And really, those forecasts are probably just close to guesses at this point. And if that's the case, it would seem to me that economists would want to have a higher June number than what we just saw actually print in May. And it's just setting things up for a potentially disappointing number in July. So considering all the variables at play with the payrolls number in May, it was surprising to me that Chairman Powell highlighted that number as often as he did. The second big takeaway I took from the FOMC meeting and press conference is actually something that Chairman Powell did not talk about, and that is the primary market corporate credit facility. Yeah, we've talked about for a while now that this facility is frankly overdue. The secondary market facility has been operational since May 12th. And in Powell's Senate testimony on May 19th, I think it was, he stated that we expect all of these facilities to be stood up by the end of the month. And he said, I don't say that it won't be a day or two into June, but that's our expectation. So we're now recording this 10 days into June and still no official word on the primary market corporate credit facility. And before we can get this facility, the Fed needs to release an eligible issuer's certification form, much like they did for the eligible seller's form for the secondary market facility. And between the release of that and the facility becoming operational, that's going to require at least about a week of lag time, right? That would seem to be right to me, Dan. But at this point, I think we have to acknowledge that who really knows what's going on with the facility? Maybe they'll follow some other form of certification that's not like the one they did for eligible seller. I don't think that's the case. But at this point, I have to acknowledge that this is also strange to me that maybe something else is going on. I mean, taking a step back, 
primary IG markets are so healthy now that it's very difficult to imagine anyone wanting to use the primary market corporate credit facility anyways. Remember that PMCCF liquidity is available to corporations at rates that are quote-unquote informed by market conditions plus 100 basis points. So who's paying 100 basis points above primary markets that are now printing with negative concessions on a regular basis? No one's going to do that. In fact, I'm concerned at this point with the potential stigma surrounding certifying for use on the PMCCF. Is that sending a signal to markets like, hey, despite how healthy the market is at this point, I'm worried I won't be able to access the market, so I'm certifying here. It doesn't seem like any corporation would do that. The thing that's really important about that, though, is the secondary market corporate credit facility where the Fed will start buying bonds of individual names in the secondary market also requires a certification process that we expected would be one and the same with the PMCCF. So if there is no PMCCF certification process, does that mean the Fed can't buy individual names in the secondary market for at least weeks at this point? Yeah, again, that's unclear, but it did seem when the Fed released its FAQs in mid-May that in order for bonds to be eligible in the secondary market, companies would have to self-certify certain criteria, like that they weren't depository institutions, they weren't receiving direct aid from the CARES Act and a few other criteria, it would seem like that's going to be the case. So it's not clear where we go from here. No, it's really not. At this point, predicting details on the PMCCF, like when and how it will go into operation, probably isn't really worth it anymore just because, frankly, it should already be in operation. And even further, at a certain point, it may not really matter because, like you said, primary markets are so healthy the facility likely would not be used with any real regularity at this point. Yeah, perhaps it's a testament to how powerful the Fed really is that they were able to achieve this remarkable recovery in the primary market without actually lending a single dollar through the PMCCF and only tens of billions in the SMCCF over the course of the past few weeks. Over the past few months, spreads have retraced 80% of the move without the Fed actually buying anything. It's truly remarkable at this point. And that actually brings me to another note I made here on Chairman Powell's presser. And it came during his last question. He was asked about the potential for a bubble in the stock market. I'd have to go back and hear it again to make absolutely certain. But it seemed to me that he was saying that at least in the current economic environment, the Fed perhaps wasn't worrying about bubbles because the monetary policy implication for the real economy was more important at this point than bubble consideration. Did you hear something similar? Yeah. And I think that's not terribly divergent from Fed policy, at least explicitly. I think most Fed officials would say that watching asset bubbles is not part of their primary objective. However, Powell did come across a little bit more strongly in that point than I would have expected. I would have expected him to emphasize the short-term impact of job creation and and economic growth, and then that asset bubbles are a long-term consideration. But he really did downplay the importance of watching asset bubbles, period. Yeah. And to be clear, I'm not saying I disagree with him. Clearly, the pandemic is a once in a century unforeseen type of economic challenge. So we should be more focused at this point on keeping businesses alive and keeping the unemployment rate as low as possible. Still, it was a little surprising to hear the strength of which he said that. And for someone holding equities, that might not be great news considering all of the talk in the last couple of days about how overvalued the stock market might end up being. I made one last note on Chairman Powell's press before we move on, and I think it's an important one. I noted that in his response to one of the questions, Chairman Powell used the phrase, assuming the disease is under control. And I noted that because it's not the first time he's said it. He said something very similar in his 60 Minutes interview, assuming the disease is under control. And we discussed earlier on the podcast how 
Chairman Powell took a surprisingly pessimistic tone regarding expectations for the economy and for businesses amid this pandemic challenge. And that's assuming, as he said, the disease is under control. I don't know that I'd want to hear what his expectation for the economy would be if there's a second wave. And again, this is a factor that we've been highlighting for the past few weeks now. I don't see much reason to not expect a second wave at this point. Yeah, Dan, it's an important point. I think we've highlighted it a few times in our written pieces. Texas announced a new record in hospitalization rates the other day. And I think that's an important statistic because it's independent of any availability of testing. You had Arizona's healthcare system implementing its emergency care plan this week. And so I think there's no reason to expect that this virus is going to go away. We've heard similar comments from Fauci recently. And I think it's important to stress because even though these cities and states are reopening, we still have this virus and no vaccine in the near term. Right. And then you combine that with what's going on in South America right now. And South America is a tough one because only 10% of the world is actually below the equator. But we see exploding caseloads in South American countries as their fall goes into winter there, which potentially lends evidence to the notion that summer really does play an important role in virus transmission, which could mean that clearly what you're talking about with Texas and Arizona here, we're seeing that the virus is by no means gone. And what South America is telling us is that we might be setting up for a significant second wave at some time in the fall that could stress the healthcare system again and force people back into lockdown. And I think that, that would be a truly dire situation for businesses that have fought to survive just this first wave. And so, Dan, with that in mind, I think we should maybe transition the conversation a bit away from the FOMC today and to our general view on credit spreads at the moment. And I think we've been pretty consistent for the past few months that we favored a near-term risk-on approach and essentially not fighting the Fed type of spirit, but that in the medium and long term, we remained a bit cautious based on the potential for a second wave. And in that time frame, we've seen risk assets perform incredibly well. Obviously, the stock market erased 2020 losses, albeit briefly, during the past week, and spreads have retraced over 80% of their initial pandemic-induced widening. So, Dan, what's your view on spreads at this point? Yeah, I think, like you said, primary markets are on an absolute tear right now. We've had four straight days of negative new issue concessions, despite record issuance in investment-grade corporate markets. I think that's a testament to the Fed's ability to ease funding costs. But we're now reaching these levels where investment-grade spreads are around 160 basis points, just about 60 basis points off of their pre-pandemic tights. And those levels we saw were the result of a prolonged low-volatility yield grab environment. And so it seems unlikely that we're going to retest these pre-pandemic levels of about 100 basis points over treasuries. So I think in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see this rally in spreads start to slow down a little bit. To be clear, I don't think it's going to stop in the next week or two, but I think it's going to start to slow down. And then I think we're going to start to see some profit taking once we get to these more expensive levels, given the economic headwinds that are not going anywhere. I agree with you. Just given the overwhelming demand we're seeing right now, particularly in order books for primary market deals, it's hard to think that spreads are going to start widening here. But I couldn't argue with anyone who said that now would be a good time to take profit. I agree that the pre-pandemic spreads are not likely a fair target given the market environment we were under then. So I just went back and looked at what was the average over the last 10 years of different spread products to get potentially an idea of what would be a more fitting target for where spreads could tighten. And what I found was that broad index IG spreads were at about 140 basis points. Higher quality SSA debt was about 15 basis points. And in both markets, we're quite close to those levels. We're not quite there yet. So a little bit more narrowing wouldn't surprise me. But 
once we get to 140 or so on IG, and certainly anything through that, or 15 basis points in SSAs, I'd be looking to sell because our medium to long-term view for another bout of risk asset price weakness might be coming as early as July. And there's a few reasons we say that. First, there is the potential for some technical pressure on spreads from profit-taking into the end of June. One of the largest potential sources comes from bank treasury portfolios, where we're expecting to see a significant provision for credit loss in second quarter bank financials that banks may look to cover with their HQLA portfolios that likely contain significant gains from the purchases they made in March and April. So we could see some technical selling pressure from banks at the end of June, and not just from banks either. We could see money managers as well looking to book some profits ahead of the traditionally lower liquidity during July and August. Then it wouldn't be surprising to see some of that technical weakness transitioning to a more fundamental repricing of credit for a few reasons. Yeah, I think given the expectation for the potential for a second wave in the fall, that could realistically begin to be priced by the market sometime in July, a few months out. And if we saw another economic lockdown where people went back into quarantine and businesses closed again, then I think you would start to see a lot of businesses that had struggled to get through the first lockdown, unable to get through another lockdown and ultimately close their doors, particularly if there was not another piece of stimulus on the table like there was for the first one. And by July, it seems like stimulus might run out. And if we don't get a phase four, that could be particularly problematic, right? Yeah, you make an extremely important point. And just updated numbers on the CARES Act so far show that about $1.5 trillion of the $2.7 trillion in CARES Act money has already been deployed by the government. So that leaves roughly $1.2 trillion remaining. But I want to highlight where that $1.2 trillion remaining exists, because for the most part, it's not in very stimulative sectors. In fact, two-thirds of remaining CARES money goes to one of the following three programs. One, delay employer payroll tax payments for some businesses. Two, loosen caps on interest deductibility and operating losses for businesses. And three, in support of the $4.5 trillion Federal Reserve loan package. So we have those three programs making up two-thirds of remaining CARES money. Two of the three are tax deductions for businesses that, frankly, that's not going to be very stimulative. Sure, it's going to save corporations some money, but it's not like tax deductions are a huge panacea for corporations. And now the money that's earmarked for the Federal Reserve, not stimulative at all. I mean, yes, the Fed's loans are generally helpful for business, but that money that just goes directly from Treasury to the Fed is not seamless at all. So there's really not much seamless contained in two-thirds of the CARES Act money that remains to be spent. Where there is still stimulation that's going to come from CARES Act is with the unemployment benefits. That's the next largest program with funding remaining of about $135 billion is unemployment compensation. We've gotten through about $90 billion through the first two months of the program. Obviously, we have a lot more unemployed workers now than we did at the beginning, which gives you really 46 weeks of extraordinary unemployment compensation left in the CARES Act before that program runs out of money. So that if we take a step back, we're looking at in July, we're looking at PPP money beginning to run out. Because recall that PPP loans were originally conceived to cover business payrolls for a period of two months. We have CARES Act stimulus running dry when enhanced unemployment compensation runs out. And third, there is one thing that I haven't seen talked about too much so far, and that is the new tax date of July 15th. I just talked about how two of the three largest facilities remaining for CARES Act funding is in the form of corporate tax deductions. Well, that money hasn't been spent because corporations aren't filing their taxes and neither are people that owe the government money because one of the first steps the government made was to delay the tax payment dates for April and for corporates in June to July 15th. But what that means is that come July 15th, in about a month from now, 
there's going to be about $500 billion worth of taxes owed to Uncle Sam. Now, that doesn't seem like a very good sign for a struggling economy. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that is going to be a pretty big headwind that hasn't been talked about very much. So I think to wrap this all up, while we don't advocate getting in the way of this narrowing momentum and this risk on tone and credit spreads, it's likely that it's going to start to run out of steam over the next month or so. And then there's going to be some pretty significant headwinds facing spread markets in July, especially if there's not another round of fiscal stimulus out of Washington. That concludes this episode of Macro Horizons. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 